I'm Alan, and my pronouns are they, them. I'm Kaylee, and my pronouns are she, her. And my name is Danielle. My pronouns are she, her, and you are listening to Target Snark It, a weekly podcast from Broad Digital Consulting. Hello, hello again. I'm the captain of creativity and strategery, Kaylee. Hello, I am the chief annoyance officer at Broad Digital, Owen. And this is Target Snarket, a weekly broadcast brought to you by Broad Digital Consulting. Uh, if this is your first time listening in, thank you so much for joining us and make sure to like and subscribe wherever you're watching or listening. And if you're joining us again, Thank you so much for not getting annoyed with us. It's really heartwarming and something we need to hear constantly. Um, and let us know on YouTube, Instagram, or TikTok, any topics that you might be interested in hearing about in the future, or if you just want our hot takes on things. But for today, we have a very special guest on our episode. We have the Associate Director of Marketing Intelligence from Mintel, zooming in from the Chicagoland area, Caitlin Chachowski. Am I saying that right? It's Sikowski, but Sikowski. I will also, oh, uh, it's so okay. close. I will also say it is not my maiden name, and I'm pretty sure my in-laws don't even pronounce it authentically. I so. Know. I don't think there's a right or wrong way to do it, frankly. I went in <laughs> totally blind. I don't know why I didn't ask at the beginning. It's okay. Um, I, if I were to go to Poland, they would laugh me out of the country <laughs> with our pronunciation. So it's okay. None of us are correct. <laughs> so Caitlin has directly advised a wide variety of clients on consumer insights, competitive intelligence, and marketing strategy from my personal favorite and Denver depression go-to GoPuff, Campbell's, PetSmart, and Visa, although those are just a few. And she's also been featured on NPR's Marketplace and Marketing Brew. So Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be so fun. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you do at Mintel, uh, kind of how you got to where you are today? Yeah, of course. So as you mentioned, I work, live, eat, sleep, breathe, everything in Chicago. So that's where I'm located. I started out um, at a variety, a few different marketing agencies specializing in digital marketing strategy and content strategy, uh, and primarily for CPG brands. So mm -hmm. a bit of food and drink, a bit of household, a bit of personal care, but just coincidentally, a lot of CPG. And after a few years working in digital marketing strategy and content strategy, I was realizing I had more and more interest in research, and mm -hmm. that is really what brought me to Mintel, which is, you know, the the best of the best as far as market research goes in, in my consideration. And so I joined Mintel in April of 2019, joining the Insights team in writing food and drink reports, wow. which really meant... Yeah, I was conducting food and drink consumer research, both quantitative and qualitative, to understand what consumers wanted out of these categories and what they wanted from brands, mix of surveys, qualitative exercises, variety of categories, you know, soda, pizza, snacks, fruit, everything under the sun. And after doing that for about two and a half years, I realized I really loved it, but I missed being so client facing and I missed yeah. talking about advertising. Um, in Consumer Insights, we're always talking about brands and how they're positioning themselves, but not as granularly as much mm -hmm. in that area of the business. 
So I decided in September of 2021 to move to our consulting offering. Most people know Mintel for its syndicated research, but everything we can do syndicated, we can also do custom. So now I work on consulting, which means working directly with our clients, which is what makes me really happy. And now instead of focusing solely on food and drink, I actually do advertising and marketing research. And typically that means working with CPG and retail brands, but again, have covered financial services, telecom, everything under the sun. So it's been a really fun transition. I've absolutely learned that research is where I'm happy. I love thinking about consumers and I love thinking about how brands can communicate with consumers better. Awesome. That was so interesting because I'm thinking about your timeline of when you started, you said 2018 with Mintel. 2019. 2019. So like right before the pandemic and you were researching consumer behavior and and it, originally in food and beverage and, and things like that. And I, I can't imagine the shifts that you've seen. Oh, oh yeah. It was, it was a really insane time to be working in consumer research, especially in any CPG research, because we started relying on everything in the store so mm. much more. You know, previously you would be doing a mix of dining out and cooking at home, but everything moved to home. So we just saw all of these CPG food and drink categories skyrocket which of course was great for these companies, but then they're all wondering the same question of how do we maintain this momentum? How do we make sure that in two years, our sales aren't absolutely squandering? You know, we want to make sure if this is the first time you've bought Campbell's soup in three years, we want to make sure that you're staying a consumer with us and that you have a good experience with the brand. So it it was an absolutely wild west of a time to be getting into market research, but it also, it forced all of us to get smart really quickly. And that that's just been invaluable. Yeah. Well, you know, we talk a lot here about brand activism and I, one of our first episodes we ever recorded was about the JMB whiskey Christmas campaign in Spain. And so we've been talking about whether or not, uh, companies are actually impacted by taking a stand and you bring this extremely unique perspective to this conversation about having the data, the receipts about what people are actually looking for from the companies. So that's what we want to focus on our podcast today is more of the consumer aspect of what people are actually expecting from companies. So one thing I kind of wanted to start off with is What do consumers think that companies actually can do? Do the average consumer think that companies have the power to make changes with what they're doing, or do they see this all as just performance? It's a great question. Obviously, a lot of nuances to it, and we'll get into all of those. Yeah. But what we're generally finding is that consumers themselves want to make a difference on a variety Mm -hmm. of issues. Mm -hmm. But we're just people. We have limited time. We have limited money. We have limited resources. So we cannot enact change on a massive level ourselves. And so what consumers are looking to brands to do is to use their resources to act on their behalf. And so we have a ton of data that illustrates this. 50% of U.S. adults agree that brands' acts of social advocacy or activism can help make a difference. So half. Which, if you think about it, all the different generations, people who live all over the country, that is a pretty significant number. Um, It's easy if you live in a big city like I do to be surrounded by like-minded people. But of course, these are issues that are very contentious and people Mm -hmm. do have different opinions on. So to get 50% of people saying that brands do and can make a difference, that's pretty massive. And if you get a bit more specific on different issues, it stays pretty strong. So 40% of U.S. adults believe brands have the power to help improve acceptance and understanding of transgender and non-binary people. 47% agree that brands have the power to help eliminate gender roles and stereotypes. 
it's still a pretty significant number of people saying, you have the money, you have the platform. If you say this, change will happen. And this is more anecdotal, but I think also we see brands as responsible for some of our issues as well. Mm-hmm. Think climate change, you know, yeah. stereotyping, representation. Brands are responsible for some of these. And so I think the logic there is if they can be responsible for the problem, then they also have the power to be the change and the you know solution. Of course, we can get into trust and a million other things about whether this yeah. is all performative, but generally <laughs> the sentiment among half, if not more, or a little less than half of people do believe that brands have the power to enact some level of change or at least be a partner in change. I don't think we've ever really, Kaylee, on the pod touched on the responsibility of social issues being on the brands. Like, yeah. You know I mean? But if you think about like Exxon Mobil, like uh, when I think climate change, I think Exxon immediately. We're, mm-hmm. it, we're, we're going to like lose sponsors that we don't have already. But like, <laughs> yeah, oh, no. fine. Like, but you know Exxon's yeah. out the door. <laughs> or like stereotyping or like fat phobia in, in fashion brands and things like that. I don't think I'd ever really connected those dots um, as far as like, you're part of this problem. You mm-hmm. should be fixing it, really. Totally. I mean, I, I can recycle everything in my home. I can compost. But at the end of the day, if Coca-Cola and PepsiCo, who are both clients of mine, full like transparency, mm-hmm. but if they don't do something about plastic, you know, nothing I'm going to do is really making a difference. So it is about leaning on either a level of responsibility from companies or government, because that is where we're going to see actual widespread change happen. That's a huge statement, too, about the government, because all of these companies at some point are following regulation, like they're doing things and they're pushing boundaries that regulations are there. And if the regulation isn't there, they're probably going around it. So that's actually a huge thing is the government also does have like a big part in making these changes or at least forcing these companies to make bigger changes if needed, if it's having, you know, all water. We, we had a water issue here this weekend, unfortunately. And my boyfriend decided we were going to buy the liquid death, the canned water. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it's amazing. You can sponsor <laughs> us liquid death, but like, it's just, it's aluminum rather than plastic. And it's like a little bit of a change where I know that that aluminum might go into making another can rather than just plastic. That's going to live in a landfill somewhere. Totally. Yeah. And it's a really interesting conversation to have because a lot of the brands that we really champion for doing good work are championed because they're not being pressured from legislation. Mm -hmm. They are actively choosing to move forward on these issues in the way that they choose independently. Um, So that, that of course, also makes a brand look really good in the eyes of a consumer. Uh, We talked a little bit about trust. And I know trust is something that not only brands are losing, influencers are losing, in my opinion, I don't, I mean, I don't trust no one, but what are kind <laughs> yeah. of the overall feeling, especially after 2020 in terms of trust with these companies? Sure. So one element of this is the size of the company. Mm-hmm. So consumers naturally trust smaller companies more than they do larger companies. And we have found this. I, I have a stat here, 44% of U.S. grocery shoppers agree that smaller food and drink brands tend to be more environmentally friendly. That is just a perception. That's just a feeling you have. And (laughs) over a quarter of U.S. grocery shoppers agree that small brands are more authentic than national and name brands. 
So again, there's this perception that the larger the corporation, the less trust we can have in them. And it's why a lot of these smaller startup and disruptor brands, you know, get such strong followings because there is the assumption that they're acting more ethically or they're championing certain issues better than a large mm-hmm. company, even though maybe from a resources perspective, that may not be true. You know, a large company may actually be investing more into combating climate change than a smaller company just based on the amount of resources they have. But we do perceive those smaller companies as being the more ethical you know, good guys, while we perceive mm-hmm. the larger companies to be more in it for the profits. And oh. I think that's valid, right? If, if yeah. I think there should be a level of skepticism when anyone is trying to sell you anything. Mm-hmm. I think that's a natural response. And so if you are seeing brands champion these ethical initiatives, I think it is very fair to ask yourself, do they care about this? Am I seeing this across the board at the organization? Or is this purely performative to get likes and clicks and views and just generate stronger brand affinity? Or is this something that the company actually cares about? That's a very valid question. Well, and we talked, it's interesting, the parallels, because we've talked about small business culture being toxic and how it's kind of sneaky in that you're right. The And, and the data showing it too, that we have this perspective of smaller being, like you said, more authentic, um, less slimy, I guess, but it isn't always that way because limited limited resources impacts literally all of the decisions we make and why wouldn't that be true of a company as well? So yeah, I just I just wanted to bring that up because I was thinking about it as you were talking. I was like, oh yeah, I do I, I held that belief as you were saying it and then I felt challenged by it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Too, you know. One thing I have to wonder is if there's a difference with like age generation. And I only say this because um, I know some older grandparent age people that like they still use talcum powder, even though, (laughs) uh, you know, causes cancer, doesn't have good stuff. But it's like, hey, my mama put it on me. Her mama put it on her. Like, it's fine. Do we see that trust might be seen more in like older or larger corporations amongst like older people than younger people? Or is it kind of the same across the board? Trust would be a little hard to gauge on that. Um, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm sure we have the data somewhere. I don't have it <laughs> at this time. I yeah. can say definitively, we know that younger consumers pay more attention to brands, missions and social mm. purposes. So we know younger people are paying more attention to this and they find it more attractive in a brand than an older consumer does, but it's hard to determine whether or not that's based in trust or just kind of a lack of interest, um, depending on the issue as well. Um, There is still a sentiment and we can talk a bit more about this. Consumers are torn about brands, you know, championing ethics on um, whether there's real impact there and whether it's of interest or relevance to the brand. And we do find that older consumers don't find it as relevant or as important. So that could kind of go hand in hand with something where I've been purchasing from X brand my whole life and I'm fine and it's always mm-hmm. been fine and I like their prices and I know where to find them in the store. So why why would I shake things up? That could also just be habitual. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's actually a great point. And you know, going as far as brands, even, you know, musicians, we all saw the Taylor Swift documentary where she was nervous about whether or not she was going to take a political stance and her 
his dad manager, I don't know, man, the man uh, was saying <laughs> that she was going to immediately lose half of her following if she made this stance. Have you found that people are reluctant to see that stance or are they more excited when a brand make it, makes a stance, like statistically? So depends on one, the audience and two, the cause. Okay. So as I mentioned before, we have found that younger consumers are have a more positive association with taking these stance. Um, we have found that also liberal, democratic-leaning consumers tend to find more relevance in brands doing these things, whereas more conservative um, or Republican-thinking consumers more so don't see the place in a company to be speaking on different issues and championing different issues. Uh, but it also really does apply to the cause. So there are certain causes that generally consumers are more passionate about than others, and that's also going to play a factor in what the sentiment response is. Obviously, those causes change in importance all the time, depending on what's happening in the world around us. Mm -hmm. I'm sure if you were to do research on a weekly basis, what the top three causes were to U.S. consumers would change depending on what was in the news. I think typically some of the top ones are always climate change, gun control, and racial inequity. Those, those are the top three in our research right now. But again, I, I'm sure that the week Roe v. Wade was in the news, you know, mm, reproductive yeah. rights would have been higher at the top. So I think it really does play a factor. But depending on what cause you're going to choose and who your audience is, that is going to play a big factor into whether or not people think this is amazing. I'm so happy I'm supporting this brand or I don't really care or what are you doing? You know, mm -hmm. it could vary all the way over there. We actually, we have a really, really cool point I would love to talk about in one of our surveys. Let me pull it up here. It is really interesting. Okay, so we showed a prompt to U.S. adults saying in June 2022, the CEO of more than 220 U.S. companies signed and released a letter calling on the U.S. Senate to take immediate action to reduce gun violence in America. Thinking about this open letter from CEOs, which of the following statements are true for you? 33%, so a third, said this positively affects how I view this, this brand. 31% said companies should use strategies like this to address social issues. 22% said that this doesn't go far enough to address challenges like this. And 19% agreed that they didn't think brands should get involved in social issues like this. So we are seeing some consumers in a stronger amount saying, this is great. I think you are a better brand for doing this. Other companies should be doing this, but we're also seeing over a fifth of consumers saying, that's not enough. I need more from you than that. And then we have almost 20% saying you shouldn't be doing this at all. So it is a very fraught issue. It's very fragmented. Yeah. I tend to find myself on the, it's not enough stance. Sure. Quite often. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, you, you would not be alone. <laughs> well, my question is too, is like, is that a like, you're not doing enough, don't do it at all. Or is it a, you're not doing enough do this and more, you know, question mark. Yeah. Well, I, I think you would be, you'd be like, either. don't do it at all. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be like, just stop. You're embarrassing yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of, let's talk about brands that have either embarrassed themselves, do it right. Let's start with the ugly. What are some examples of like companies that just did not do it. They, they weren't <laughs> looking at the data. They flew in blind. Like, give us some good examples. Yeah. I think one that always comes to mind when we talk about brands that are responsible for a problem is Victoria's Secret. 
Ooh. Yes. Ready Ooh. for it. Yeah. Just Ooh. the trauma, the trauma yeah. that just releases from any millennial woman at the mention of that retailer. Um, and this is a brand that has chosen to be better, to try to keep up with this category and expand sizing to some extent to focus the center on more of what women want from this category rather than what men want from this category. So there are efforts there, and yet it's not working. And you can just Google, you can hop on an earnings call. It's not going great. And I think a big part of this, they, they understand why their competitors are doing well. If you look at the products they offer, it is leaning more leisure wear. It's leaning more comfort oriented than, you know, mm -hmm. when we were young. Um, yeah. I felt like if you wanted to find a comfortable piece of clothing at Victoria's Secret 10, 15 years ago, you had to go to the farthest back part of the store, you know, yeah. you had to get you had to pink. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think they understand why companies like Third Love or Aerie are doing better than them, but they haven't yet figured out how to convince us consumers that they are a brand worth shopping from. So it's like, we know why our competitors are doing well, but they, we have not been able to offer a value differentiator that sets us apart from them in a positive light. And I think a big part of that, I mean, chime in if you disagree, but I don't feel like that is a retailer that ever took really strong accountability for the way that they impacted a generation at least of women. Hi, I'm Jordan. You don't know me and that's fine. I want to recommend something to you that you'll love. It's Owen's debut poetry collection, Dead Name, and it's available for pre-order now. Dead Name is a collection of poems that shares the coming of age of one trans and queer person in the new millennia, yet it echoes across all identities to show how embracing the liberating and revelatory act of queer love and transition can not only free queer people, but all of us. Here's what poet Kieran Hodgers had to say about it. You're gonna wanna sit down for this, put down whatever else you're reading and call in sick to work. Dead Name is a pulsing, vibrant, and necessary collection that heralds the vivid, visceral experience of heartbreak, joy, wonder, confusion, and hope. Technically astute, creatively playful, and emotionally honed, I am angry at how incredible these poems are, and that is the highest compliment I can offer. So if you like to be mad, sad, happy, moved, and just generally feel things while supporting a queer and trans podcaster you know and love, pre-order dead name from right bloody uk today find the link in our target snarket social channel bios on youtube tiktok and instagram at target snarket and you know other brands who have championed ethics and tried to improve have said we know we screwed up and we take responsibility for that here's how we're doing better and i felt like victoria's secret just said here's how we're going to improve without ever really formally apologizing for traumatizing all of us yeah I, and like I, i'm like have we seen, I, cause like, I'm like the things I remember right now of in more, more recent memory. I remember them having really some nasty comments about including trans women models. Yep. I have uh, a memory of they're doing another fashion show. They're reviving the angels or something. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm like, have you really done the things that are the problem to fix? Like, do you have plus size models right I don't know what the fuck that means um and <laughs> do, you, do you have like diversity are you showing anything other than standard I don't uh, if they're doing that I don't know about it and I consume a lot of media you mm -hmm. know 
Yeah, I, yeah. I believe they have quite a few campaigns out that show a stronger range of bodies and more so prioritize and center on women's needs. But again, that's not our perception of the brand, you no, know, yeah. at, at all. And so again, with this new fashion show, I'm going to assume if they're willing to restart it, they're going to feature a variety of women. Hopefully. They have to. They, they have, have to. to. You have yeah. a new standard with the Savage shows now. Absolutely. Like the Savage Fenty shows are out of this world oh. in comparison of like people who are in it. It's a whole show. The it's way that the whole thing is, it's an entire performance. Like there's just a new standard that you can't get away with what they have been for years. And, and Fenty came out of the gate that way. You yeah. know, that, mm-hmm. that's what's so amazing about Savage X Fenty is that Rihanna didn't pat herself on the back for having inclusive sizing and showing a range of people. She just did it and yeah. said, mm-hmm. this should be the norm. Like, I'm not going to point this out as special or important because it, it shouldn't be. This should be what you're used to seeing. And the shock value you're getting out of it is because this industry has done you so wrong. Yeah. And so it's like they, you know, Rihanna just did this. She's like, yeah, I'm just going to do it and I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. And that's going to show you how important it is that this is just the standard by which yeah. we advertise these types of products. And Victoria's Secret is just not at that level. And they just, they haven't been. And I, I think that is a brand that could really benefit from doing some deeper consumer research into what, what are the associations with your brand? How do you actually start connecting with these people again? Because, you know, a woman scorned, right? Once you've hurt somebody, it's really hard to get them to come back. Oh yeah. I, it's kind of funny. We talk about accountability. Cause I was just, I, I got very heated about this, about like white guy comedians where <laughs> I, I would say most comedians for the most part, they either hide behind like cancel culture or something like that. And they're like, you know, I was an asshole, but that was me back then. And it's like, that's not how you hold accountability. You don't go, yeah, I did that thing, but I was different then. You go, I did that thing and that thing was wrong that I did. It doesn't matter if I was in a bad headspace. doesn't matter if that's what the times were like. I did that thing and it was wrong and I'm changing. That's what taking accountability is. Like, oh, it drives me insane when people are just like- it was just like, that was us back. And I will say I am Abercrombie and Fitch is another one that I think we all can get a little eye twitch from. Um, but they have done a pretty good part in terms of opening up their sizing. Their sizing is actually like, I should not fit in a one in an extra large, but I am fitting perfectly in it. And they have that, of it, that variety in, but they still haven't really taken accountability for like, the horrible way that they were hiring people in the stores and the way that they said in the stores to treat people. Like Mm -hmm. there was a documentary about it, but I don't remember them saying, yeah, all of that is also true. Just FYI. Yeah. I do think they made some statements saying you're going to see a documentary about us. This is not the company we are today. We are deeply ashamed of these business practices. But again, you, you can apologize and improve, but it takes time. Of course, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like yeah. how many how many positive experiences do you need to have with a brand to outweigh one bad one? Yeah. Let's lighten the room a little. And what are some like good examples? What are good some examples. brands that have done it great? Yes, I think especially talking about accountability, Miller Lite did a campaign with Alana Glazer for Women's mm-hmm. History Month and it was called like bad shit to good shit. 
And essentially, they used Alana Glazer as a mouthpiece, which I appreciated because let a woman do the talking. If we're yes. talking about women's representation in Women's History Month, you know, choose somebody who also is a positive figurehead for women. I think a lot of women like Alana Glazer and we like what she has to say about women's issues. But they essentially had her explain that Miller Lite in the larger beer industry has not done a great job of representing women. Its advertisements, its labels have typically been very hardies and that it's like women in scad clothing and bikinis holding beers. And it was their formal apology of saying, we are sorry, Hmm. we've been representing women like this. And actually, we've also done this other bad thing that you may not have even realized, but we have not given women proper credit for the work they've done in the brewing industry. And so in this whole campaign, essentially what they were doing is they were buying up all of the old ads that showed women in that very, you know, stereotypical misogynistic light. And they were turning them into compost that could be used to create beer. And they were donating these grains in the compost to women brewers. So to truly like forward and champion their own brewing efforts. So I liked that one, they took accountability for what not only they but the whole beer industry so they're basically saying we're going to take accountability for the entire beer industry even though it wasn't just us i'm going to apologize on behalf of all men you know it was very (laughs) that yeah Um, wow but taking accountability for it doing something about it it to benefit women in the industry and then letting a woman explain all of that and i i thought that was really great Granted, I've never perceived Miller Lite as being a particularly harmful brand for women. So I didn't have a strong yeah. negative perception. I'm a Miller Lite girl myself. Um, <laughs> Champagne but, <and> beer. <laughs> but I was yeah. like, yeah. And the thing is, I would, I, if I were thinking about harmful women representation, I would not have blamed Miller Lite. Mm, but no. they were like, we do play a role in this too. And they called attention to the role that they have played in it. And and turn this, you know, cop to it and then turn this into a way to benefit women. And I was like, you didn't have to do that. You really didn't. Nobody was asking you to apologize for this. You just decided to because you knew this was the role you played. And I thought that was really admirable. I was like, absolutely. Go, go Miller Lite. The girlies beer now of choice. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. I've always like, I I feel like that's something I've always said. Alwyn is like, what's the next step? What are you actually doing And being able to say, like, between destroying the ads that were sexist, beautiful, using that for fertilizer and compost for female brewers, like, oh, God, it's that is so perfectly lined up with everything. (laughs) Yeah. And they, they were also asking people to send in any sexist beer imagery or like paraphernalia that they had to so that they could destroy it for them. And so it's also, we're seeing this with consumers too. They don't just want brands to do great things. They want brands to make it easier for us to also support these causes. So not only are they doing something, they're helping us do something as well, which is just, yeah, it's chef's kiss. It's perfect. (laughs) Well, yeah. And there's no, like, when we were talking about the J&B whiskey ad, there was just this element of like, things were still hidden. Again, the accountability piece, like coming forth and saying, I did the thing. And then- Kaylee's big issue was like, where to from here other than buying whiskey, you know, yeah. um, because it, that's when the trust element that we've discussed, like kind of when things get slimy is it's it's like, are you leading people to a place where they can actually help the communities that you are saying you're trying to help versus just buying your product? 
but maybe you could also buy the product that would be pretty cool too you know? <laughs> yeah. we, we all know what we're here to do today <laughs> yeah yeah one example of brands that we kind of wanted to touch on anyway next was uh brands that have that as a central part of their overall branding i mean i love ben and jerry's we i love all the love stuff ben and jerry's. they come out with anytime like the Black Lives Matter ice cream, like the 420 stuff. I love that they are just two radical, like Vermont white dudes and they're using their ice cream for their message. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Ben and Jerry's is incredible. Also, when you consider the fact that they're owned by Unilever, so they're owned by a massive company and they wow. are still like two middle fingers up. I am, <laughs> we're going to post whatever we want. We're going to say whatever we want. We don't care who it outrages. But the great thing about them is if you do research on their brand, which I had to do because I did Mm -hmm. ice cream research for two (laughs) years in a row, um, you find that since their origin, they have been about activism. So for as long Mm -hmm. as they've been about ice cream, they've been about activism. So it's always been a core part of the brand. You know, Patagonia, very similar, Mm -hmm. where it's synonymous with it because it's not just something they picked up at the right time. It's just always been an important part of what they think this brand should do. And I think they get away with it for that reason. There are times when we see brands, you know, hook their, you know, ship to a cause. And we're like, does this make sense? Like, does does Bagel Bites have anything to do with pay equity? You know, and that's not a real example, but I'm just saying. (laughs) That would be amazing. That would be hilarious. (laughs) But you you would see that and you would be like, does Bagel Bites have the power to do anything about pay equity? Um, (laughs) And this is kind of similar where you're like, does an ice cream brand have the power to have any sort of effect on racial injustice or climate change? Or so you you would kind of go to that place, except you don't because mm-hmm. they've always done it. And so it it's really beneficial to them as a brand where now, you know, they can really speak on whatever they want and people see them as a point of authority and even as a point of education on certain issues. So even on their website, you can learn about a variety of causes, like jail reform, really, like anything. And you can trust that the information you're getting from them is probably pretty good. And that is really difficult for just, you know, your everyday ice cream brand to do. You know, imagine if Halo Top was like, yeah, we have a whole educational section about gun control. You'd be like, what? Excuse me? Like, is this... Are you for real? Like, uh, okay. Are we... Really? Um... But because it's Ben and Jerry's and they've always done it, you're just like, yeah, absolutely. Right on, dude. I believe you. Well, and I mean, even Patagonia, I'm thinking too, like, I think their example of like, even the CEO walking the walk, because I, I, I always envision in these companies, I'm like, okay, but there's a bunch of people up top and they're still super fucking rich. And like, <laughs> whatever but i know patagonia made the news what like last year because the ceo gave up his salary or some shit i can't remember exactly i made a tiktok about it actually making fun of it because i was like it's still consumerism but like within the like realm we're working within capitalism like and and we have to work in it until we have something else like that's a pretty fucking stellar move that is representative or like it's like an icon. I don't know the word I'm looking for, but it's like mm-hmm. a really good example, a shining example of like something hard of literally giving up power, giving up money for something that matters. Yeah. I pulled up the news story just so we can like clarify exactly what it is he did. Um, he transferred him and his children who own the company transferred their ownership 
valued at $3 billion, so no small pennies, to a specially designed trust and nonprofit organization. Um, so they're truly transferring the company over to an organization that can be trusted to use it ethically, which is, it's a bold move. It's absolutely yeah, a bold move and really does speak to their priorities. I do think there was some conversation going on during that time that there were some tax incentives for that. So it kind of gets to what you're saying yeah. where it's like, there's always something. Um, <laughs> but, it, but again, as long as someone is selling something to you, you know, that, yes, is anything going to ever be purely for the good of heart and not also improve the brand affinity uh, or sales, you know, I, but I think the important part is, is it making a difference? And if a company profits off of making a difference, I think that's still okay. Yeah. Because then maybe other companies will do good shit too. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Could change the standard of the way that things are ran. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they've always done great. Yeah. Are there any downsides to when you have kind of this advocacy being the center of your brand? Oh, I mean, the level of scrutiny you are going to receive if you publicly proclaim yourself as an ethical brand could certainly be considered a downside. Everlane's a really good example of this. They came out as a brand, again, a smaller brand, a smaller Mm -hmm. D2C apparel brand. So, of course, you immediately have that perception that they're better. And they're good. And on top of that, they have said, we, we champion transparency. So we're going to provide transparency into our supply chain. We are going to prioritize sustainable, you know, I, I'm totally the wrong person to talk about this, but fabrics, you know, we're, we're going to try to make our footprint as good as it can be. And so they really, you know, stake their claim that we are an ethical company. And so the second something got leaked about them maybe not being 100% ethical, it immediately made headlines. So Mm -hmm. there was a lot of conversation a few years ago about them union busting, about some anti-Black corporate behavior. And the thing is, the second something catches wind of this, if you have declared yourself, we are the ethical company, this is what we stand for, people are going to scrutinize every element of your organization, and you need to be prepared for that. And I think Everlane was a little unprepared to defend itself on that level after having years of profits and really strong consumer perceptions. But that that can certainly be considered a downside if if you want to get in on this. Consumers are going to pay attention. And the second something seems a little off, you should be prepared for it to go public. I think that goes a lot with kind of what we were saying at the beginning, too, is that consumers believe that we can make a difference. So people are thinking if you're saying you can walk the walk or you are walking the walk, that you're doing it, that what you're doing is ethical. Like if it's been your entire brand and especially like a small business that we all know people want to help mom and pop shops and everything. And this ain't nothing about mom or pop at all. But like, yeah, everyone wants to as soon as something wrong happens, they just want to jump on it. Like, yeah. Oh absolutely. my God. We, they, they, someone was opening up the first lesbian bar in Portland, Oregon this last year. Um, and, uh, everyone was super excited about it. There's a lot of, of hype, course. especially because gay bars are like dying and especially dyke bars are like, you know, they're really hard to keep open. And like the political climate of Portland is like progressive city. But they didn't, they didn't, again, it's like, remember your audience, like you're going to attract a certain, you're going to attract a certain type of person that is aware, that is, um, 
that, like you said, Kaylee, wants to make a difference in the world in certain ways. And they did not pay attention to it. They did really shady hiring practices. They didn't follow code. They didn't like do a bunch of things. And, and uh, stuff came out about them being also anti-Black. And it was like, oh, my God, who said like, let's o- let's what are we doing? Bar. <laughs> let's yeah. open a fucking are we gay doing? bar in the most progressive city yeah in, in portland oregon, oregon. Oh <laughs> and let's do a bad job <laughs> let's like not, let's not consider all of the things that you should consider you know let's make it so this. no one wants to do this ever again great <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know and nobody wants to go to the freaking bar they reopened after a massive like massive backlash all over the internet like they had to shut down comments on their instagram they secretly reopened and like i'm like how are you, how are y'all going to do this we need a new bar yeah <laughs> I, that's what's such a bummer right is this would have been a really great space for the community that i'm assuming a lot of people were looking forward to that all yeah. of a sudden you don't have yes mm-hmm. exactly and and also it's it creates like so much tension in the community and like it's like really you didn't have to do that much you just had to do a good job because you're serving a community that gives a shit, you know, yeah. about certain things. So, and consumers do really care about it. I have a statistic here 45% agreed that it's hypocritical if a brand has committed to a DEI initiative and then does not take a stance on social and political issues. So, no. it is there is recognition of the hypocrisy. You can't do one without the other. You can't have DEI without having a voice and you can't have a voice without doing DEI, which is what it sounds like this bar was doing. You know, we're going to say we're all about it and then everything at the organization level is going to be absolute trash. Um, and so consumers recognize the hypocrisy of it. And, you know, whether they can actually figure it out for themselves is always difficult. But the second someone else does the work for them, they're going to care. Yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to just touch on real quick is kind of like it. We talked about it a bit. If we want to be ethical with our choices and our capitalism consumer choices, it's going to cost a pretty penny to get the free range eggs or like, you know, not fast fashion clothing. So what are some things people have to think about when you want to be shopping ethically as well? Yeah. So really just because you want to be supporting these great brands and these great causes doesn't mean you can. Of Mm -hmm. course, Um, this is the basis for why consumers are leaning on brands altogether is because they don't have the time or the money to be making that big of a change. So I think what we're seeing a lot of is that consumers have to prioritize other things before they can prioritize brand ethics. We are in rough economic times right now. People have Mm -hmm. to prioritize price, even if it means buying from an unethical brand. People have to prioritize convenience. Mm-hmm. I know that me going and buying my little frozen dinner from, you know, big X corporation isn't going to be as good as me going and supporting local farmers at my local farmer's market and creating food from scratch. But, you know, I just work here. I'm just one woman, you know? Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's, it's like we consumers don't always have the ability to shop the way they want to. And so I think for brands investing in these causes, they sometimes say, well, we're not doing as well as our competitors. And, you know, there is a validity to that where you are more expensive. Mm -hmm. You are harder to access. You know, maybe you only sell online. That is always going to be a barrier. And just because consumers want to be making these behaviors doesn't mean it's the number one priority. We see that in a lot of sustainable fashion, sustainable beauty. 
mm-hmm. where it's like, I, of course I want to buy the sustainable sweatshirt, but your sustainable sweatshirt's $120 and that's just not feasible for me. Or I can only buy it at this one store in Portland, Oregon. And guess what? <laughs> I don't live there. Um, and so there are all of these barriers and we, we know this is happening. 65% of U.S. adults agree that because of the economic downturn, they're shopping more on price rather than value. Over yeah. half agree that brands that are socially conscious always seem to be more expensive. So there, there are hard elements for consumers to navigate when wanting to support these brands. And that's all to mean that when a brand does invest in an initiative like this, they can't just expect it to absolutely skyrocket in sales because there are typically those barriers. Well, yeah, and I think about too, like going back to the beginning of our conversations where you're like, well, it when Coca-Cola does something, it makes a huge impact because right, they they because they're larger, they have access to more resources, but also doing things on a larger scale makes mm-hmm. things less expensive. And so like some large company making a sustain- sustainable sweatshirt at a lo- en masse would drop the prices for things. And I, I think that puts a lot of, I guess it changes my perspective of wanting these bigger places to do more of that so that everybody else can also drop their prices in my mind. Has more, absolutely, as a fair shot of going yeah. to market in an efficient and, you know, accessible way. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. Um, you know, again, if you want to get a canned water, if you want to get a carton of water, that is probably going to be more expensive than getting a plastic bottle of water. Mm-hmm. But maybe a large beverage corporation could mass produce cartons or, you know, cans, and they're going to be maybe 20, 30 cents more expensive than a plastic bottle, but they're not going to be a dollar or two dollars more expensive. And there's a certain price range where you're like, okay, I'm willing to spend a little bit more on this, but I, you know, I'm not, you know, Mrs. Moneybags over here. I can't go spend five extra dollars per product just to be ethical. You know, that's not feasible. Yeah. All right. Well, on some closing thoughts for all of this, Caitlin, what should companies be focusing on more in the coming years? Should they be making stands? Should we be focusing on any specific stands? What should they be focusing on? So I don't just say this because I work for a market research company, (laughs) but investment in consumer (laughs) research is essential. Mm -hmm. It's important to have a good pulse on overall trends and sentiment, but it's also important to have research specific to your brand and audience as well. Um, Because like we've talked about a ton today, whether an initiative is going to work and positively affect your business is going to be based on who your audience is and what cause you choose to align yourself with. And a lot of that is going to be determined through consumer research. You can't really figure out how it's going to work best for your brand just by feeling and thinking about it. You really do need to do the hard research to understand what your audience specifically would like. Or if you want to expand your audience, what would this potential audience want to see from you too? So I think that is the first and foremost thing that needs to be happening before tackling any of these initiatives. Another element that's important that we we didn't bring up yet is that there is a difference between being a brand that's an activist and just a brand that's not behaving unethically. Um, This is a big (laughs) distinction. And unfortunately, we're at the place where I think a good first step is just to make sure you're not behaving unethically. Yeah. Um, Because what we have found is that it's a lot easier for consumers to avoid a bad company than it is to invest in a good one because of the things like price and accessibility that we've talked about. 
And so I think 65%, let me check. Yeah, 65% agree it's more important to them that they do not support a company they find to be unethical rather than actively support a company they know is socially conscious. So an example here, we can think about Chick-fil-A. How many people boycott Chick-fil-A because of their anti-LGBTQ stance? How many? <laughs> I a, do. Yes. I don't, um, but I I also feel like it's the straight. Oh, and you don't? No, listen, here's my <laughs> argument. I love this. <laughs> I think it is it is my ally's responsibility to boycott. Okay. I will first. <laughs> then I will give up my little chicky sandwiches. Sure. And they're lemonade. I mean, I don't even want to say they're good, but really I'm like, I'm like once that's my excuse. It's a, it's a gross rationalization for a fucking chicken sandwich, but go on. It's, but in general, it's going to be, it's going to be easier to avoid Chick-fil-A and maybe go to McDonald's than it would be to all of a sudden start going to sweet green. You know what I mean? Um, And, you know, I don't even know their ethics. I just, they're expensive. So that's the example I'm using. (laughs) Um, And so I think if you don't know whether or not you should take an activist role first, like make sure your organization is Mm -hmm. clean, right? Make sure you have proper DEI in place. Work with a consultancy to figure out what that needs to look like for you at the organizational level. Because again, if you take on an activist role and you're not aligned internally, people will find out and they will call the hypocrisy on it. So first and foremost, like do your research, understand what opportunities are there for you. If it's something you're interested in as a company, make sure internally you, you've got what you need to have going on first and then start considering what causes make sense for you. What causes can you have a direct impact on? Don't just choose something because you know there's high popularity and favorability for it. You want to make sure that whatever you're doing, you can talk about on an ongoing basis how you're actually contributing to it. So again, bagel bites and pay equity. Yeah. That's a great thing to champion. Can bagel bites do anything about pay equity? Maybe. I don't know. I don't work there. Um, but maybe it would make more sense that they're like, you know what? We are going to champion using um, less mass produced ingredients or something like that. And you're like, okay, that, that starts to make a bit more sense. And I could see how you could have a contributing factor to that. So I would say those are really the steps And then the cherry on top is if you can also find a way to facilitate support for consumers. So not only you doing something about it, but also finding ways for your audience to also be able to help the cause as well. Because if they're shopping for you because of the cause, it's probably because they care about it and would also like to get involved. That's huge. Kaylee, are we not going to ask her what her biggest mistake at work okay. is are Let's you trying to make you know it what? kind of hoping to avoid it <laughs> oh, yeah no we <laughs> no, it's okay it it's totally okay so caitlin what we try to tell all of or ask all of our influencers because failure in the workplace is totally fine and we are okay with it yes, what has are. been your biggest mistake at work okay i'm gonna do a small one and a big one because i okay. think there are differences so my biggest small mistake When I was conducting fruit research, I wrote the fruit report, a great report, a great market, and I valued it at $9 million, which is not correct. It could have even been like $12 million. That is the net worth of a lot of people. Um, That is obviously not the value of the entire market. I meant to write billion, and instead an M just got in there, and clients did catch it and were like, who 
is this person <laughs> who thinks that the entire fruit market in the U.S. is like nine million dollars. And that was and it was early on when I started working in consumer research, which I, I just want to say that is a learning curve going from, <laughs> yeah. you know, like creative strategy to research. It's a learning curve. And so I, I was really, really humiliated and unhappy about that. So that was, that was my biggest small mistake. It was not a big deal. It was just a typo that got fixed. <laughs> a embarrassed, like shameful tail between my legs apology. <laughs> um, I would say the biggest big mistake I have made, and I would say this is probably across the board, not calling attention to toxic behavior when you see it mm. and when you experience it quicker. So I, of course, will not name names, but Keely and I did work together. And I felt like I did not say something. I did not say something when I saw something until I was leaving. And that mm. is a pretty, I think, big mistake and regret. That's something that probably did impact other people I work with. Um, or did work with. And I would say that, that that is huge. And it's something I am fiercely very strict about now to the point where I probably uh, scare men everywhere. Um, but it, you know, <laughs> yeah. the, the second I feel like something is off, I feel like I raise it and not to yeah. know diminish things, but it, it is something that's important. And I do think about it a lot where I'm like, I, I really wish I would have had the confidence, the strength to voice concerns quicker and earlier in my career. Um, and I think hopefully we're all getting better at that as we're learning how important it is. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I think, I think that, that, and I would call that a mistake because we all have access to the same amount of information. We know what's right and what's wrong. Mm -hmm. And to not say something months after you probably should have is not a great look. So I would say that's my biggest big one. I definitely yeah. feel like that's more important than me incorrectly valuing the fruit market. Um, <laughs> but well, yeah, I, I think that's a big one. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that. It's it because it's such I I think it's really relatable. Um, I mean, I even have a shameful work experience before I knew I was trans, where a, a trans coworker really got like treated super poorly and then fired. And I did not say anything. And I, you know, I've always been queer, but I like kind of just let it happen. Sure. And of course you can say, oh, there's all this internalized stuff I was dealing with my own transphobia, my own, but like you said, it was wrong and I didn't stand up for it. And I, if that happened again, I would do it in a heartbeat. Burn I the place down. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Light it on fire. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, so I really appreciate you sharing that. I'm glad yeah. we asked that question, even though it was, it's a tough one. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, it's, it, it's true. It is. We're trying to be honest and we're trying to help other people. <laughs> I yeah. will also say as someone, uh, my boyfriend, unfortunately, had a coworker experience something similar last week. Also, just a reminder that HR works for a business and not for their employees. Mm. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. So yeah. If there is something really, really, really wrong, HR might not be the people to go to, but that, oh, that is sucks. That is also very correct. And I feel like in my situation and a situation that's normal you don't feel like you can vocalize something without being mm -hmm. penalized. So you wait until you're one foot out the door to vocalize exactly. it. But, but by then you're not around to continue mm -hmm. to talk about this or provide proof or, you know, continue to stand up and advocate for the people affected. When you wait, as I did, until I was leaving, I really couldn't support the person that I was thinking I was supporting by saying something because I was saying something 
um, at a time when I was, you know, 48 hours from not working for that company yeah. anymore. So, yeah. oh, well, thank you so much for joining us again and of for course. following my cold DM. I've been sliding <laughs> into DMs left and right. Thank you so much for answering. <laughs> Absolutely. I loved it. I saw Kaylee. I was like, Kaylee. What is Kaylee messaging me about? Excuse me? Hello. And she said, <laughs> oh, I don't know. Also, she said, we never disclosed. Like, me and Caitlin used to work together way yes, back in did. the day. So Transparency. Nice yeah. <laughs> Thank you listeners for following and continuing to come back to us every week and or maybe every other, or maybe you binge us in one go. That's totally fine. Uh, we hope you learned something new, made you have a think about something or, you know, enjoyed talk, having us all talk at you during your daily commute. Make sure to subscribe on YouTube to watch our faces, like us on Instagram and TikTok for our highlights from our episodes and memes and fun stuff. Let us know if you agree or disagree with what we talked about in our comments below, or if you're, you know, just want to like, comment, tell us we're pretty, you're feeding our algorithm monster and that's what we love. So thank you again, Caitlin, for joining us and hey, bye. Thanks for tuning in to Target Snarket, a weekly podcast brought to you by Broad Digital Consulting. Our podcast is hosted by Danielle Bilbrook, Kaylee Myers, and Alan Connolly, and produced by Margot Gill. You can always learn more about Broad Digital Consulting on our website, broad.digital. That's B-R-O-A-D dot digital. Or you can find us on social media using the handle at Target Snarket. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And if you're feeling so inclined, we'd love for you to review our pod if you like what you're hearing. 